1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. Paul writes, Now I commend you because you do remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head was shaven. For if a woman will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a woman to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a woman ought to have an authority on, or perhaps over, her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man now is born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, and nor do the churches of God. Well, one thing that tears the heart out of every parent is a child who can't recognize her own beauty. Maybe it's something you feel most sharply raising girls when they have such a deep, natural beauty which their culture doesn't seem to value, and they want to replace it with something that isn't beautiful because it isn't who they are. They want to look and feel and be like other people rather than how they were made. And that speaks of an insecurity that's far wider, doesn't it? It doesn't just belong to younger girls. Something about us fallen human beings seems to constantly doubt the beauty and value and worth of what we are and wants a kind of beauty that isn't real beauty at all. Well, last week we started work on this first half of chapter 11, and if you missed that, you'll probably have a lot of questions about what Paul says here that we'll be assuming the answer to today even though Paul's basic message is quite clear, there's a lot that is just very hard to understand. And some things here that are just very hard for autonomous human beings to accept. So you might want to go back and listen to the groundwork we did last time. And please do come and chat while you're working through it all. But one thing we tried to do then was slot this paragraph back into the letter it came from. Because where you put the frame does make quite a difference to what you see in the picture. 
back in its context, we saw that this is a passage about how Christians, men and women, lay ourselves down in love and bring glory to God. The big, explicit focus of the text here wasn't prophecy or authority or submission or the things that distract us so much. The explicit focus is glory and shame, beauty and ugliness. This is a passage telling us that humanity has been made by God in a way that is beautiful, no matter what they say. There is something in the way we've been made to relate to one another that even angels look at in wonder. And when we ignore that or we try to erase it, it brings dishonor and disgrace instead. The problem, though, is that so often we can't see what is truly beautiful, especially when our culture tells us that it's ugly. We said last week that Paul's basic message was this. Men and women have been created differently with a relational order that we should honor and visibly express. That means particularly when we worship, but not only then, we should be conscious of our maleness and our femaleness all the time. We never leave it behind. We should be conscious of what we're communicating about it and how we're relating to each other. And for them then, in first century Corinth, that meant two specific applications. First, in verse 4, men ought to self-consciously be worshipping as men. And secondly, the attention-grabbing one, women ought to embrace the particular cultural norms that spoke of feminine dignity and modesty and that honoured the place of their husbands. Now, for us now, of course, that will look slightly different, and we'll give some time later on to how it might look in a church like ours, in a time and place like ours. But first, the logic of this passage breaks down into three sections. There's a basic principle in verse 3, which everything else supports. And each of those sections is driven by a fairly strong idea. First, shame, then glory. And finally, decency in verse 13. Shame is the driving idea of verses 3 to 6 then. And it warns us that what is beautiful can become ugly. It's so important if we're going to allow this passage to shape us, that first we recognize how God's ways are always deeply, truly beautiful. We'll see later on how the differences between men and women are part of that beauty. But the fundamental thing that makes human beings beautiful is the one who we're made to be like. And that's the heart of this pattern. Being like Jesus. Verse 3 tells us that whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are relating to somebody else as a head or as a body, your calling is to be like Jesus. He is the pattern for both. Now, someone said to me very honestly last week, I can see what it's saying there in verse 3. I just can't accept it. I just can't accept that the head of woman is man. It is so shocking in our culture. So 
What on earth does that mean? Well, let me say that one of the most blinkered arguments in all of New Testament scholarship has involved poring over that word head, kephale in Greek, and trying to pin it down. The big debate for the last few decades has been between people who say it means authority and people who notice what Paul says in verse 8 and argue it's something more like source or origin, like the head of a river. And the only way to really resolve that dispute was to wade meticulously through literally thousands of uses of the word kephale in the Bible and in Greek literature and see what you find. And thankfully, that's something the scholar Wayne Grudem did so that you don't have to. And he demonstrated pretty conclusively that whenever the word head is used, the idea of authority is always somewhere in the picture. Hardly ever, if at all, is the primary idea something like source. But here, I think, is why we've got into trouble over this. You see, Paul doesn't say authority, and he doesn't say source. He could have, but Paul chose to say head. Head doesn't mean either of those two things, does it? Head means head. What do we see in Jesus when... The Bible talks of him as the head of his body, the church. Well, we see there is far, far more to being a leader than bare power and authority. It can't mean anything less than authority and submission. But if we think that is all it means, then we won't get this at all. What exactly does Paul talk about in this passage? We assume, don't we, that... Being the head means you make all the decisions. We want to build a kind of hierarchy, a bald chain of commands. And clearly there is some sort of ordering and hierarchy here. But the way Paul goes through it in verse 3 explicitly resists us from majoring on that. He doesn't step through it all like a ladder top to bottom, valuable to insignificant. He puts Christ at both ends, doesn't he? It's a Jesus sandwich. There's nothing here about value, about worth. On both sides, it's about being like Christ. And Paul says nothing here, at least, about who makes all the decisions. His focus is on who you honor, who you bring glory to. And I think that is the most helpful way to understand what Paul's actually talking about here. A head is the thing at the top of your body. It's the thing that faces out into the world, the thing that identifies you as you. If we think just in terms of naked power and authority, then we'll always think of head as someone who's set over and against us. But is that quite what we see in Jesus? Think of that passage we used as our call to worship at the end of Ephesians 1. Is authority in the picture there? Well, absolutely it is. Jesus there is given authority over everything and everyone. But listen to verse 22. It's authority Jesus is given to or for the church. It's not authority he exercises against us. It's authority that he exercises for us 
out into the world. Our head is the foremost, our firstborn, our preeminent one. And that's a subtle shift in how we think, isn't it? But it is the pattern that we saw in the Garden of Eden before sin messed things up. I owe a lot to some of the beefy commentaries on persuading me about this, but it was the writer Alistair Roberts who I found really helpful in spelling out what a profound difference that little shift makes in how you look at the headship of Jesus. He isn't simply head over us, is he? He's the firstborn brother among us. Think of it in terms of Jesus, Robert pointed out, and instead of a simple hierarchical chain, a ladder, headship becomes an empowering union. Now, isn't that how true headship always ought to work? A head loves, a head empowers. And I know we don't always see leadership, headship like that in our sinful relationships. Maybe some of us have never seen that in our fathers, our husbands. But verse 3 tells us we'll see it in Jesus Christ. Not as the eternal son of God. He's not talking about the eternal son there who is equal with the father in power and authority and substance. He's talking about the incarnate Christ who became fully man for us and lived and died and now reigns forever and ever in that humanity. And as man, God-man, he shows us what loving leadership looks like over and for his body, the church he bled to redeem. And as man, he shows us what loving honor and submission looks like to the Father he loved and obeyed, even unto death. So if you want to learn what it means to be a head, you need to look to him. And you'll see no place whatsoever for abusive authority, no place for laziness, for putting your feet up, for treating your wife like a domestic slave, no place for weak abdication of responsibility. No place for selfishness, no place for taking advantage of positional power. And if you want to learn how to exalt your head, how to be a body, well, you need to look to the very same Jesus, where there is no place whatsoever for standing on our own rights, no place for holding back love all the way to the end. No place for grudging or cold-hearted obedience. No place for talking down the one you want to lift high. You see, the more Jesus-like our relationships are, the more deeply beautiful, the more human. But verses 4 to 6 spell out what happens when we try to erase those distinctions. Instead of showing something beautiful, we show something ugly. Erasing our maleness and femaleness brings shame on the ones we're meant to honor. Now, men would sometimes pray with a covering of sorts on their heads. There's a statue of the Emperor Augustus doing just that. Possibly it's a sign of humility in pagan worship. And women would sometimes be seen with their heads uncovered. A good proportion of the statues of 
wealthy women from Corinth of that period showed them just like that, just like the powerful men. So possibly it was a status thing for women in Corinth to aspire to the same, which means that this was a countercultural message even then. Clearly not all women in the church felt it would be a deeply shameful thing to dress in a certain way. It's why you have to say it. Whereas shaving your head was a deeply shameful thing. It meant stripping away your femininity altogether. Often it was the punishment for adultery. But Paul is saying that one is essentially no different to the other. Both try to erase a woman's true womanhood. When it's those distinctions that are actually beautiful, they're part of how we honor our different heads. Well, there's the basic message of the passage. As Christians, we have a beautiful calling to follow Jesus as men and women. But if we resist that and blur the distinctions, then what is beautiful can become ugly, shameful. And for the rest of the passage, Paul is really just supporting that basic theology. First, with reasons from how and why we were made, and then with appeals to nature and to custom. The driving word in verses 7 to 12 is glory. There is something glorious about men and women living for what they were made for. That idea of headship seems so ugly and alien to many of us, but the truth is exactly the opposite. It's precisely this relational ordering that is most beautiful about human beings. What seems ugly should be our beauty. In fact, it is so deeply beautiful, so unique to humanity, that even angels hold their breath to watch it as if they're staring at a masterpiece. Men and women, we're told here, both exist for the glory of someone else. And we bring them glory in different ways, which go right back to the reasons human beings were created like this in the first place. Man, we're told in verse 7, was made in the image and glory of God. There was something in the role given to man, to Adam, that uniquely expressed God's loving rule over his creation. Men and women don't image God in a monochrome, identical way. Right from the start, man was given a mission, given dominion to exercise as he began naming the creatures. And man brings glory to God when he exercises that loving rule. When he prays as a man, leading confidently in a fatherly way, he's showing something there about God's fatherly glory. There's a sense in which every father is meant to be a pastor, a priest in his own house, reflecting something of God to the family he's there to care for. And to cover his head at least in that culture, was in some way to obscure that specific way that as men we're meant to reflect God's rule, his authority. Just as when we abdicate our responsibility, when we're weak as Christian men and lazy, 
we take the shine off that glory that we're meant to reflect. John Calvin wrote that the father of the family is like a king in his own house. He's to hold the first place in its government. It's that idea again of preeminence, isn't it? But I wonder if often the truth is that we're more like officers hiding from the battle, leaving it all to the ones that we're meant to love and to lead. That is not how men bring glory to God because it doesn't reflect him, the one who led right from the front. But women too, he tells us, they were made for a special sort of glory. Both of us have our own way of bringing glory to our head. Man is the glory of our creator, God. Women are the glory of his creation. They too are made in the image of God. Notice he doesn't say they're the image of man. They are every bit man's equal in worth and value and intrinsic dignity. But they were made to be the glory of mankind. Man without woman was not good. He couldn't complete his task. There was something stunted, incomplete, one-sided about him. But woman was his perfection, the crowning glory on all of God's work. There is an ordering, isn't there? Differences in both source and purpose of our creation. Adam was made first from the mud, and Eve was made out of him. She's made in a way that's bound up with him and his calling. She wasn't made to show the world what dominion looks like. He was doing that. She was made to refine it, perfect it. That's what he means, by the way, when he says that she was made for man. He doesn't mean she was made to do his every whim. She was made for his mission as a help and support. Again, Alistair Roberts put that very helpfully, I thought. Man establishes, woman completes. That's what we saw in the garden, isn't it? You see it in a very small way. Every time we've ever done up a house, I will come in and rip everything out and smash it all up and sweep away the old floors and the walls and the wiring. But it's Jen who comes in and takes all of that new space and turns it into a home, somewhere you'd actually want to live. When people come and admire the house, they don't comment on my initial smash and grab. It's the finished work that brings glory to me. And of course, like any illustration, that will be generalizing. Not every marriage is going to work the same way around. And some of us are doing this on our own. But it shows something, doesn't it? That generalization, it shows something about our wider calling as men and women. There is an order, a difference in how and why we were made and who we were made to honor and glorify. But it's not a straightforward hierarchy. Look at verse 11. Both need each other. Adam quite literally cannot fill the world and subdue it without Eve, any more than he could change his own nappies. If man and woman are separated, said Calvin, then they're like the mutilated members of a mangled body. We belong together. It's why we feel it so deeply and grieve so profoundly when a long marriage comes to an end. In that moment, we just can't escape how much 
we depend on each other. But woman is at her most beautiful when she reflects the glory she was made to reflect. And that brings us to verse 10, one of the hardest verses to read in the whole thing. Literally, this is why woman ought to have authority on or over her head because of the angels. He might mean there, as our ESV interprets it, that woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In other words, some sort of hat or hairstyle, a sign of modesty and respectfulness for her husband. But grammatically, it's just as possible, he's saying there, that she ought to have authority or control over her own head. In other words, that other form of feminine beauty, not the long flowing hair of a young available girl, but the dignified, self-controlled beauty of a faithful woman, that is a mark of her own self-possessed authority as she worships. Here's a wonderful comment from Jim Phillip. The very thing which is the symbol of her subjection to man is the sign of her beauty and power and glory as a woman. The more womanly a woman is in the sense of being subject to her husband, the more completely she fulfills her destiny in God's sight and attains to his plan and purpose for her in the world. Now, isn't that so deeply true and so often what we need to hear? Sometimes we can be just like our daughters as they worry about dressing for school in that we just don't recognize the thing that is actually most beautiful about ourselves, the way we were made. Well, whichever way you read verse 10, while man and woman relate to each other like this, each manifesting to the other the respect and glory they were made for, the angels watch on and wonder. Now, Paul's mentioned those angels twice so far in this letter, and I think that gives us our best clue as to what on earth he means there. First, in chapter 4, verse 9, he told us that his whole life lived for the cross was a spectacle lived before their watching eyes. He's conscious that this display of God's glory has a far bigger audience than the one we can see. And secondly, if you remember chapter 6, he told us that mankind will one day judge even this angelic world. So humanity really is the crowning glory, the apex of this creation. And our maleness and femaleness is what makes it unique. It's what the sexless angels lack, and it's something that's beautiful for them to see. Our world may tell us it's something to be ashamed of, that it's not a significant part of us, But what seems ugly should be our beauty. And thirdly, very briefly, verses 13 to 16, what feels arbitrary is often rooted in nature. And we can only spend a few minutes on this, but the key word this time is decency or what is proper. You guys feel this stuff, he's saying. It's not weird. It comes naturally to you. Living out the differences between men and women is what ordinary people out there think of as proper, 
And verse 16, it's what Jesus' church all over the world thinks of as proper. So if you want to pick a squabble with me over it, you need to know you are out of step with culture, really, and with Christianity as a whole. This stuff goes deeper than we realize. Now, you might read this and think, yeah, but what feels proper in one society feels totally different in another. All of this really is just completely arbitrary, isn't it? Talk of custom and decency. We're told all the time that it's just culturally conditioned. And at a very superficial level, yes, lots of it is. That's perfectly obvious just reading these words. It doesn't always feel like a disgrace now for men to wear long hair. But show me one culture around the world or down the ages that doesn't have some way of distinguishing men and women. They might not all be the same, but we all have something. People object that there's no such thing as definitively female clothing now because there are parts of the world where men will wear skirts. Well, come on, we're a room full of Scots. Does a kilt look girly to any of you? Or can we all tell the difference? It's not arbitrary. There is something innate in us that wants to express itself, and every culture does it. And verse 15 gets at that in a beautiful way. A woman's hair is her glory. If women are meant to be the crowning glory of humanity, then nature itself has a way of crowning her. Now, goodness me, we spend hours every morning battling with a hairbrush. There is one child with thin hair who wishes it was thick. There's a child with thick hair who wishes it was thin. She gets hers from me, and it makes every morning a struggle for her. But on her, it is so beautiful. Nature itself has given her a crown, a covering. So what is true beauty then? Well, beauty is accenting nature. It's going with the grain of the way God designed things. That's always true, isn't it? There's something unseemly about a man who plasters himself in fake tan. You just don't want to trust him or in wearing so much makeup that it changes you into someone else. Real beauty just accentuates who you really are. It doesn't try to erase it. If God has made us as men and women, then true beauty embraces true manliness, true femininity. Not the sham version of those things that our culture insists on, the real versions that we see in Jesus. In their culture, whatever this hat or hair thing was, it said just that. It said, I love the way God has made me as woman. I love being a daughter of God. And I want to embrace the way that shows the world something of Jesus in the way I relate to others and exercise agency over my own sexuality and honor my husband That's what it looked like then. So finally, what might it look like now? How do we show a deep, joyful obedience to this truth in our culture? Well, we could have given this a whole third sermon, couldn't we? But let me at least suggest two areas 
that we ought to be thinking about. Firstly, I think this chapter is calling for an outward display of those differences between men and women. Outward, visible signs do matter. They do communicate. And it seems to be the done thing in a lot of preaching at the moment to shy away from that a little bit, to narrow down the application ludicrously so that it only speaks to what married women do when they pray in church and nothing more. I tried to argue last week that this probably ought to go a lot deeper than that. I recommended Claire Smith last time. She's right in her book that there's no one garment in our culture that says, I'm a married woman and I'm happy to be a married woman and I accept the ordering and authority that gives to my husband. We don't have a simple clothing choice that will do all of that work, but there are still ways of looking like a man and like a woman. And those cultural norms are at least a start. Christian men shouldn't make a virtue of effeminacy. That doesn't mean we swallow a godless model of manhood, but we shouldn't run away from manhood altogether. We shouldn't be ashamed to embrace roles or duties that are seen as traditionally male or female. There's nothing manly about sitting on the sofa with a pipe and a paper while your wife runs around barefoot in the kitchen. That's a sinful sham masculinity not the Jesus kind. But there is something deeply God-honoring and glorious and beautiful about a mother who embraces the role of homemaker, of carer-in-chief. And as Claire Smith pointed out, we do still have ways in our culture to express a certain ordering within marriage, to define ourselves in terms of our relationship to someone else. There might be good professional reasons not to take your husband's name, but that does say something to the world, doesn't it? There might be good reasons in a particular marriage to avoid a joint bank account, but again, that does say something to the world. Our world tends to spit at the very idea of a father giving away his daughter at a wedding, let alone the honor and obey vow in a traditional marriage service. And we've got to admit that a lot of abusive fathers and abusive husbands have given the world reason to despise those things, but both of them speak very clearly, especially today, of that wider ordering and the duty that we expect of fathers and husbands to be like Jesus in how they exercise their headship. And above all, we want to model that when we're together as a church. Yes, this goes beyond that, but church is meant to be the showroom of God's grace to our world. So if we don't model it in here, in our most solemn and sacred area of life, well, when will we? I love this little comment by William Still. He mentioned how so often to the shame of us men, Women have to come to the rescue in a church prayer meeting. And thank God they do. But where are the fathers when someone needs to fill that awkward silence? 
I am very, very aware that to someone looking in on Edinburgh North Church, it seems pretty odd that our service is led more or less entirely by men. It does seem odd, doesn't it? And depending on how much you can take verse 5 as normative, and there's debate about that that we touched on last time, there might be ways to change how we do things and make us stand out a bit less. I personally find it really helpful for the preacher to read the Bible passage, for example. It's the only infallible bit of teaching I ever get to do. But you could well say, well, here's a chance to get different faces up front. And sometimes that might be healthy. But the question is, what is driving that decision? Is it what best communicates the gospel? Or is it a cosmetic change? Because deep down, we're actually a little bit embarrassed to show this wholeheartedly. If the elders of a church are meant to have a fatherly role in our church life, well, isn't it good to see that every week as they lead our little family in prayer? One very wise woman said to me once, listen for the word only. The minute you hear people say, you only have women in your church teaching the kids, or only have them teaching other women, well, then you know they haven't really got this. They're still confusing role and value. Very different things. Let's be a church that values one another as people made in the image of God, all of us, and loved by Jesus, that values women as women, not one that hides what we believe with window dressing, and not one that plays into the lie that our worth depends on the jobs we do. If God's way is loving and it's healthy, well, let's be willing to show that. But secondly, and maybe more important than outward display, this ought to deeply challenge our inward demeanor. How do we think and feel about each other as men and women? How do we talk about each other? And are we any different in the church, or do we just absorb everything they say out there? How do we talk about the men who have been put over us? Does it sound grudging and grim, or loving and supportive and joyful? Do we bring them glory, or do we seek their shame? There's certain language that our world uses that we tend to absorb very uncritically in the church. We can hardly help it. The word gender, for example, that very word, at least in the way it's often used, it tries to uncouple our bodies and our behavior. It erases something that God made. The word patriarchy is another one. That word means something entirely evil in our world. And as Christians, we often rush to show how we agree because there's a whole load of truly nasty stuff in our culture that needed to change and lots of which still needs to change. Men have been and still are very sinful in how we treat women. But what if in our rush to show that we're the good guys, we've been embarrassed of a concept that in itself is thoroughly biblical. What does patriarchy mean? It means father rule, just like monarchy means king rule. 
And guess what? The Bible tells us the world is ruled by a good father and a good king. And that God has structured human society to reflect that. It's not something to be ashamed of. So at the very least, we should be critical in how we adopt language that rubs against the grain of what God calls loving and healthy and good. Well, that should be enough to at least start a conversation. And I'm sure in trying to ground it, I've said something to annoy everyone. But let's take it right back to the heart in verse 3. Being like Christ. We're here today because we believe with all our hearts that all that Jesus did for us as our head is deeply beautiful, no matter what they say. And so however he's made us, men or women, let's rejoice in the opportunities that gives us to show this world something about him. Let me pray. Father God, help us to wrap our hearts ever more deeply around the beauty of your gospel and the beauty of all you want for us as a loving creator. Where we disagree and we struggle over application, give us grace with one another and help us, we pray, to live it out with joy, unashamed in the way that we relate to one another at Edinburgh North Church. Help us to live and love each other in a way that brings glory to our head and king, in whose name we pray. Amen.